Well, good morning again. It's great to get a chance to be up here. This is kind of a two-week interlude that we have between finishing up Esther and then getting into Amos. And it's, uh, it's interesting what God seems to be doing in just the sermon selection that uh, David and I didn't coordinate on. Um, you remember last week, if you're here or if you saw it online, he was speaking on 2 Corinthians 5 and reconciliation with a focus on racial reconciliation and, and how much we need the gospel to work and be applied in those kind of areas. Um, three weeks before that, I was praying about, God, what do you want me to talk about? Because it's wide open. And literally the same topic came to mind. And I was wrestling, should it just be about conflict in general or racial reconciliation? Uh, and he moved me to that same point that David spoke on, except with a focus on what about walking through that conflict? You know, how do we exactly do that? What do we look at? And, and after that, what, what's happened? Jacob Blake uh, di- uh, was, was shot last Sunday, and everything, everything that's blown up since then with violence, we had a march on Washington that I wasn't even aware was going to happen on Friday, and the, the heat has really turned up on these issues. And there's just been a lot going on in the past three months since George, George Floyd died that, that has been a lot to think about. I'm curious, I mean, is there anyone, is anyone shocked about how intense things have gotten so quickly? Is there anybody who's just trying to, trying to process what's going on? I felt like that's, that's how I've been dealing with things. Um, I grew up in a fairly conservative part of Wisconsin in Sheboygan County. And, uh, and we, we celebrated MLK. Um, we hosted a large Hmong refugee population in Sheboygan. And, uh, and so I, I grew up as a kid thinking that racism was dealt with. You know, it was mostly a Southern problem. It was, it was segregation and the Civil Rights Movement sorted it all out. And I remembered thinking kind of naively in the 90s as, uh, as a Christian, if we could just balance the national budget, uh, end abortion, and uh, keep growing promise keepers, that America was going to be doing pretty good. And, and I went to, to college in the Twin Cities and studied missions and started to have some things challenge me a little bit. Um, I started to hear stories from our foreign students talking about Man, when we come to the U.S., it is hard. Like, it's so consumeristic. We're not used to that. Uh, there's so much individualism. And, and you guys, as students, are pretty rude and sarcastic. And we're not, we weren't expecting that. And part of me thought, you know, maybe they can't, they don't understand how to take a joke. And maybe they have bad attitudes about us. But it got me thinking a little bit. You know, is there, is there more going on? in our culture than I thought there was. But it didn't really sink in until I got to spend nine months over in Pakistan as a, uh, as a missionary, living as a minority, really trying to engage in a culture that wasn't my own. Um, you know, on the positive side, the people there were amazingly hospitable. Uh, they respected me as an English teacher but they still expected me to do everything on their terms. I was kind of ready for that. We were trained for that, but it's a little different thing to walk through this daily stress where it's so easy to be misunderstood. You've got to watch everything you say. Uh, You get laughed at when you don't expect to. Um, People sometimes condescend to you. You get taken advantage of. I mean, for two months, I had half of my students 
walking out of my class, halfway through my English class I was teaching, to go pray to protest my Christianity. Um, we had one angry student who, who something, something set him off about me and he stalked me with his friends for a month. Uh, we got held up at gunpoint in a village just because we were taking a picture of like a mount, some mountain scenery. Um, at about the four-month point there, I felt what, I felt very personally what gets referred to as the hardest stage of culture shock. You know, you have culture shock whenever you're in a different place. And it's hard, the hardest stage is when you just feel like you can't take it anymore and everything feels negative. You can't feel positive about anything. And, and I was ready to go home and I was surprised at this uh, resentment that just seemed to be building up in me against the very people that I had been moved to share Christ with about four months ago. And if it weren't for God's grace and the ability to seek him, uh, the strong team I was on that really loved the people there, uh, some growing friendships with students, and probably a lot of comfort eating of cheap ice cream that they had there, I mean, it would have been completely overwhelming. And by God's grace, I was able to hang on. But you kind of think, okay, I just have to get through nine months. It got easier after that four-month point. And I thought, you know, you come back to the U.S., it's going to be an adjustment again, but it's, at least I'll be home. And the, the crazy thing is, after you've been in another culture and you've kind of adjusted to their ways, everything feels different when you come back home. And I realized that People over here are expecting a lot out of you, too. You know, they're expecting you to act a certain way and to think and talk a certain way. And if you don't meet people's expectations here either, you don't get treated very well here either. And it gets really tough. It's what, uh, it's what missionaries tend to call re-entry shock. And, and I was surprised I started to deal with just as much resentment for culture and people here in the U.S. as I had in Pakistan. And I... I thought I was kind of an easygoing guy. I didn't think it would get that bad, and it was surprising. And first of all, I wondered, you know, how could I have been so sure how good everything was four years ago when I was graduating high school? And on the other hand, I was wondering, how can I get so bitter with the whole group, whether it's, whether it's Pashtun people in Pakistan or some of the, the folks around me in the U.S. when I feel like I'm on the outside? These are the kind of dynamics we're dealing with today, right? In America, we have the divide between liberal and conservative that seems like it's bigger than it's ever been. There's the Black Lives side, <clears throat> Black Lives Matter side, and they're arguing against the pro-police law and order side, and that feels really intense. There's white nationalism, that's, that seems to be a growing thing. And there's all kinds of conflict going on, it seems like, in the last years, just it seems to keep amping up. And, and we want to understand, how do we navigate through this? What's going on? What does God say about it? And, and I think the book of James has some really significant insights for us, because James is writing to the church in the first century that is dealing with really similar things. This is just a really common human problem. And so I want to ask you to turn to uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. If you have it on your phone or Bible, recommend getting those out because I'm going to jump around before and after a little bit. We're going to read verses 1 to 10 and see what James has to say about this. Let's look at verse 1. What causes 
quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it says to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. All right, well, we just dropped right into what a lot of commentators consider to be uh, the heart of the book of James. It's, uh, it's written to Jewish Christians who seem to be spread throughout Palestine or uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, we're pretty sure this is, this is Jesus' brother, James, that's writing. He's a key leader, key figure in the church in Jerusalem. And, and the situation that he's addressing seems to be, like I was saying, very similar to our own. The only difference is that instead of racial tensions, what, what seems to be the problem with groups in the church is uh, class tensions. So, so you look at uh, chapters 1, 2, and 5, and James is going after this divide that's forming between the rich and the poor. The, uh, the rich seem to be getting favored. They seem to be abusing their wealth and putting confidence in it when they shouldn't. Uh, the poor seem to be getting neglected. And it seems like in both groups, there's people who are getting bitter about this. They're getting bitter towards God and their lot in life. And in chapter 3, James warns them that their tongues are being used for evil. They're set on fire by hell itself. And they're doing all kinds of damage to each other and to the gospel. And right here in chapter 4, he, he identifies the heart of the whole problem in the conflict. And, and James is saying, you know, these problems of class conflict, uh, just like our problems today, you know, there is... They're revealing that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. In, uh, in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is saying the, the real problem isn't a lack of government policies or bad policies or, or corrupt government systems, although those things could all be a part of things. It's actually the passions and the desires that are, that are warring and battling inside of our hearts. I uh, started seminary back in 2009, and uh, the first class that I had was in culture and, and ministry. It was an interesting place to start, but I thought... You know, I, I did some missions. This should be really, really easy. Um, we had an African-American instructor who had worked for years on racial reconciliation in the Twin Cities. And uh, really, really brilliant, really experienced. 
And uh, he asked this question to us. He said, you know, what, what do you think is the first step to get people who can't agree, people who have a racial divide, how do you, how do you get them to start coming together? And, uh, and I thought, well, the answer is pretty simple, and classmates seem to think the same thing. You know, you just sit down, and you, you start to understand each other's differences, where you're coming from, and, uh, and try to make sense of what's different and appreciate it. And, and he kind of surprised us when he argued that that's really not the place that you start. He said it's people, especially when they're in conflict, are so wrapped up in seeing, in their way of seeing things, it is really difficult to go and try to get in somebody else's shoes and see what they're thinking and appreciate it when it threatens you. He said the only place to start is by sitting down and figuring out what you have in common. You know, what, what is so similar that you, you're missing between the two groups that you're part of? What's basically human about us? And I thought that sounded, sounded good, that sounds easy, but, but he was arguing, you know, that's actually not that easy to do either because it's either too uncomfortable for people to sit down in the first place or it feels like it's too slow, it takes too much patience, and it's really, really hard. James is telling us uh, that the reason it's so hard to even sit down and talk about what we have in common, as easy as that should be, is that what we all want is actually corrupt on the inside. It's a huge theme of scripture that we talk about all the time. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that our nature uh, without Christ is corrupt through deceitful longings and desires. Ephesians 2, Galatians 5, 2 Peter 1, they all say the same thing. Right from the beginning in Genesis 8, it says the intent of our heart is, is evil, even from our youth. So apparently just following your heart, it's not the answer to life. Because what we all naturally crave is warped and selfish. It all gets turned towards our own advantage. And according to, to verse 4 here, it makes us adulterous. You know, this, this love bond, this bond of love we're meant to have with Christ, which he gives us in the gospel as we get, we get saved, it gets threatened, because our hearts end up getting more attached to other things instead of him like they were meant to. Instead of loving his will, we love our own will. Years ago, after, uh, after Pakistan, I, I had the chance to be part of this uh, this really interesting, diverse, cross-cultural ministry team. It was a mix of Latino leaders and white leaders and members. And uh, we were, we were going to help out Mexican immigrants. We were, we were going to teach English and build relationships. And, you know, this is like the textbook diverse team that, we're, that, we, that we talk about, right? Like, this is how the church should work. And, and we were confident. We thought, this is going to be great. And there were good things that happened. But I was, I was surprised at how easy... Even with this, uh, this inter, interracial or multi-ethnic team, how easy it was to just start to look at these, these immigrant workers and think, you know, they're kind of funny people, they're a little simpler than us, and kind of just subtly look down on them and start to treat them that, like they were more of an evangelistic project than really real people that we really cared about. And it was hard to see them as equals. You know, our pride, even on a multi-ethnic team, was influencing us, and it was warping 
how we interacted. <clears throat> On the flip side, I've been in situations in Pakistan and at companies in the, in the Twin Cities where uh, there could be this oppressive weight of feeling like an outsider, like I mentioned in Pakistan. And it was so hard, it just convinced me, you know, it's okay to blow off steam, you got to vent. And, and I'd do it by mocking the dominant group or just relentlessly criticizing what was wrong with it. This is how they could fix themselves. And, and what I didn't notice is there wasn't much mercy in my approach. I think we have to ask ourselves, why is it so easy to demean a person or to demean a group because I feel pushed down by them or because I just feel like they're less than me? And how do we, why do we feel so justified? Why is it so easy to feel justified when we do it? I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that sinful longings, biblically, they don't just entice us. Uh, Jeremiah 17 and Ephesians 4, they tell us that our hearts are actually deceptive. They're, uh, they're self-justifying and they make what, what we long for seem like it's even God's will. You know, my dreams, they they seem just a little bit more important than, than anyone else's. Uh, my security, it just tends to occupy my mind a little bit more than your security, a little bit more than what's going on next door or in the next state or in the next country. Uh, my family takes a little bit more of my attention and concern, my acceptance, what people think of me, my job, my ministry, my respect, all, all of my opportunities they all tend to feel naturally more important to me than anyone else's. And they even feel more important than God's glory a lot of the time. Emotionally, that's what I feel like I get wrapped up in. And it's, and it's even more complex because we form family and cultural groups. We're not all individuals living on our own, but we form family and cultural groups that, that center around getting what we want which is fulfilling these kinds of desires as much as we can. Now it's hard because they're selfish. There's a give and take that has to happen, but we use each other to get what we want and we start to form these kind of unwritten rules about how you do life, what you do, what you don't do, what we expect out of each other. And if you don't follow the unwritten rules in our family or in our group, you get some flack about it. If you, if you don't conform, you get judged. And if you're a big enough threat, you can get cut off and just pushed out. And if another group seems like they might threaten our way of doing things, we immediately start to feel like that group is against us and things can quickly unravel from there once we start to misunderstand each other and we start to have conflict. And it's, it's, it's sobering to just go and look at the history of any nation. Uh, and you get surprised at how there have been centuries of inter-ethnic and intergroup conflict. Um, you know, the Tutsis and the Hutus, and, the, and over a million people killed in Rwanda. Uh, the Basque people and the Spanish in Spain, Scotland and England's history, uh, Japanese and Korean. Um, you can go on and on. African American and white in the U.S., uh, there, was, there was this saying in Pakistan that they were kind of proud of, that uh, the Pashtun people that we worked with, they're so tough that they're constantly fighting. They never stop fighting. You know, if they're, they're going to be fighting in their family between each other to get what they want. But if they're not fighting in their family, they're going to be fighting within their extended families 
over, uh, over getting their way. Um, but if they're not fighting in their extended families, they're going to fight between tribes and make sure they get what they want. And if they're not fighting between tribes, they're going to be fighting against the next ethnic group. And if it's not the next ethnic group, it's the next nation. And there was, some people were embarrassed about that, other people kind of were proud about it, but I think they were just owning something that's really part of us all. We, we have a fallen human nature, and we're always suspicious of individuals or groups of people that aren't like us. And almost always, whether we're on the, the dominant side or we're on the oppressed side, it almost always leads to some kind of division. And I think that's why James is, is so opposed to any kind of friendship with the world in verse 4. You see how he talks about that. You know, friendship with the world is enmity with God. The, the term the world in scripture that he's referring to is, is, is kind, of, it's kind of a blanket term for the kind of culture people create, the ways we do things, the things we expect and the things we desire out of life. In God's eyes, cultural systems aren't neutral. You know, sinful people create sinful cultural value systems. And when we embrace the ways of any group that's outside of Christ, no matter how good they seem, we're going to get caught up in that whole system and it leads into enmity with God. And, and the alternative that James is revealing is just draw near to Christ instead. You know, the, uh, the beautiful thing in Scripture is that the church is, it's meant to be this unique, this diverse, this grace-filled community that, uh, that still relates to the world, but it does with its own kind of unique culture. We still connect with the world, but we offer a whole different set of truth. We offer a whole different set of values that's rooted in a new heart that comes from the regenerating work of God's Spirit. The, the challenging thing is we still have those old longings that, that James is talking about here, and we have, we have to put away and put to death those longings to have that kind of ministry of uniqueness and reconciliation that the church was called for, that David was preaching on last week in 2 Corinthians 5. And, and the key that James hold out, holds out for us here in verses 7 to 10 is we just need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And there's not, not some massive effort that we have to make. But we do have to do the hard work of actually, actually humbling ourselves and owning that things aren't right in our heart. In uh, verse 7, it literally is referring to putting yourself back under God's authority. Uh, verse 7b says we have to resist the devil. There's going to be some fight in this. Uh, in verse 8, we, we draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. And this is because in verse 6, he gives grace to the humble. This is the gospel. And in verses 8b and 9, we find out that we, we get cleansed by doing the uncomfortable work of seriously considering what's going on inside of us, even turning laughter, laughter to gloom, or joy to gloom, and laughter to mourning. That's that's what it looks like to humble ourselves. It sounds extreme. You know, 
I don't know a lot of people who want to go to church so they can cry about their sin. That's not what we think of when we think of a worship service. I mean, I was, I was a teenager. I was actually thanking God when we got to this passage of Scripture that no one was actually taking it too seriously because I thought, this is probably James in a rhetorical flourish just trying to get us to think, okay, take it seriously. I, uh, I got that. But I think I was missing something back then. It's kind of like uh, mold in your house. You know, if you have a couple black spots in the corner of your, your bathroom, it's easy to ignore it. It's easy to laugh it off if you don't know what it is. Maybe it's just a little stain. But as soon as, as, soon as you learn what mold is, and that's what you've got, your joy is probably going to be turned to gloom when you consider what it does to people with allergies and how it spreads and how hard it is to get rid of. And you're probably going to be motivated to do the hard work to put it to death and clean your house and get it out of your house once and for all. And we can, we can forget that's a, that's a key part of the gospel. The gospel is all about God's grace, but it, but it starts by showing us that sin is actually a way bigger problem in our life than we think it is. You know, it doesn't just bring trouble According to James 1, according to Romans 6, it brings death into life. Death in our relationship with God, death in our relationship with others. And we, we can't fix the problem by, by doing something good, by going to 10 protests, or by posting on every social media support of the police. You know, the gospel shows us that the only hope that we have is the cleansing grace of God in Christ that comes through the cross in his death and resurrection. That is the hope to transform us. That's the hope that we can actually put to death the sin that lingers on. And, and as a believer, if I'm not aware of how bad my sin is and how it still lingers on in my life, I'm going to have a hard time depending on God's grace every day to actually change me and work in me like I need to be depending on him too. And the mold is probably going to spread. When it comes to uh, racial divides or, or bitterness with any group of people, uh, James 4 is telling us, just stop and consider those people you feel resentment towards. Don't put them out of your mind. Don't just, don't just repress the emotion and forget about it. But stop and think about who you have a hard time with. You know, realize that verse 2 reminds us that if we have those kind of feelings, we're, we're on the path to murder. We're on the path to death in relationship. We need to consider how chapter 3 reminds us that even the ways we talk, our tongue can be set on fire from hell if we have this resentment living in our heart. And it's dangerous. It's something we want to deal with. We don't want, just want to push it out of our minds. We all wrestle with these attitudes and God calls us all to humble ourselves in his sight and deal with them because we can be lifted up. The beautiful thing James tells us here in verse 10 is, if you humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will exalt you. Verse 5 speaks of God's jealousy for us. God's, God's not some distant, kind of disappointed, angry father figure that's saying, you know, you got to just get it right. I can't stand how long it takes you. He's, he's the father figure that so loved the world even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that he gave his son. He's here 
and he's actually jealous for us to be drawn closer. He's actually longing to set us free from the sin that holds us back. And he's eager to lift us up as we repent, to, to give us his grace and his love for others and a deep affection for any people, even the people that we feel nothing towards or that we feel suspicion towards, no matter what political group, what cultural group that they're part of. And maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's people in Black Lives Matter, or maybe it's people who identify as white nationalists, or maybe it's African-American young men, or maybe it's confident, uh, successful young white men, or maybe it's a group that you work with, or maybe it's people in your family or your spouse. You know, usually we struggle to love a variety of different groups and people. But whoever it is, we can, we can bring that sense of threat to God. We can bring that struggle with resentment or bitterness or hurt. And we can let him help us identify what is going on. You know, what, what am I craving underneath this that makes it so hard that we can give to him, that we can repent of, be lifted up. We can find his comfort for the ways we've been sinned against, find his strength, and we can find his heart to love those people the way that he does. I was, uh, I got to catch um, the, the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington, which just happened this past Friday. ABC was showing, uh, showing a documentary about that. And, uh, and they were focusing on Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And, and that speech, I, from what I understand, that part of his speech wasn't something he planned to say. I think it was just ad-libbed. Uh, it was something he'd, he'd spoken before, but I think he just pulled it in in the moment. And there's something about that I Have a Dream speech that, that gives us a sense of the kind of heart God's looking to give us. You know, he pointed out to this biblical love where, where black people and white people and people of all colors can get along together. And he, and he spoke of a vision that sounds a lot like Revelation when every tongue, when every tribe, when every nation is living together freely, loving God, loving each other unrestrained with trust, mutual respect. It's, uh, Dan had mentioned uh, Jacob Blake's mother, and she spoke of similar things. She spoke of searching our hearts first, of, of pursuing peace, of spiritual healing that we need in this uh, kind of mutual respect that recognizes every human being is made in the image of God. Everybody is precious, and we don't have to take sides. And the beautiful thing in the gospel is this is not out of reach. You know, God can give us the strength to put off fleshly longings, to love people like this, to sit down and to be able to listen to each other intently, to, to draw out somebody's heart. That is a powerful, powerful way to love them, whether they're your spouse or somebody who's an opposing group with you, to show understanding, to, to talk about differences with gentleness, with patience, with respect. It's a... It's a what James calls in uh, chapter 3, verse 17, living with wisdom that comes from above. He says it's, it's first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And really it applies to every conflict we face in life. 
God, God can give us the strength to prevail in situations that we feel like we just want to run away. And I'm thankful. This is what we're, what we're about as a church here at Emmaus Road. You know, uh, we define ourselves as uh, a people that are together reconciled by grace. And we explain on our website, you know, this means we're focused on bringing the message of gospel reconciliation to, to all people and also everything that is broken around us, including relationships, including cultural groups, including ethnic divides. And uh, there's all kinds of ways we can do this, but it just, it just involves being willing to bring our hearts to God, let him do that work in us, and then just sit down and, and pursue people that we wouldn't normally pursue. Engage with them, listen to them, draw out their heart, let them know they're understood. And as we talk, we can bring out Christ's vision of reconciliation for humanity and, and how that reflects on whatever topic we're talking about. That is, that is a powerful thing we can do. And you can consider being part of, uh, of one of the online conversations that's going on in our community right now. Imagine Fox Cities is starting three weeks of Friday noon hour online conversations about race and belonging. And uh, there's small group uh, kind of breakout components to it where you can be a light and you can share. You can pursue people that you know, people that you work with, people in your family that you have divides with. Um, our neighbors at Breakthrough Covenant Church, they, they organized a multi-church prayer service on Friday for reconciliation. There seems to be things that are going on on a frequent basis these days that we can connect with. Whatever, whatever God leads you to, I just want you to, to be encouraged, though. Uh, these are kinds of relationships that are not easy, they, they take time. There's no guarantees. People are just going to respond to us. But the church, empowered by God's spirit, is the place where true reconciliation, it's the only place where true reconciliation can really happen in Christ.